Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. And welcome to International Marxist Radio. Now, the topic for today's episode we think is simply too great to cover in one discussion. So, we're going to have our first ever two part bumper episode with Ben Morkin, who is a leading comrade of the International Marxist Tendency based in South Africa. Ben, how are you doing? Hi, Joe. I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, enjo- for inviting me. Looking forward to this discussion. Yes, me too. How are things in Western Cape? The uh, situation is obviously uh, heating up with the class struggle um, in Western Cape, so- South Africa. But obviously, we're going to discuss the all of the African continent. Um, looking forward to all of this. Yeah, exactly. And that's precisely why I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything in a single episode. So the plan is we're going to talk about the present situation largely in sub-Saharan Africa in this episode. And then next week, we'll take a bit of a broader view of the perspectives for the class struggle in Africa. And we'll talk about how the history of, of colonialism and imperialism still weighs down on the masses of Africa, the working class and poor, and how it affects the class struggle, how the struggle for socialism and the struggle against imperialism are intertwined on the African continent. So let's start where you are. South Africa, obviously, it's the political and economic center of gravity in sub-Saharan Africa. And I've read in the international press that a state of disaster has just been declared by President Cyril Ramaphosa. So what's going on? Yeah, absolutely right, Joe. Um, the, the state of disaster is, uh, is an emer- emergency measure um, in law, which gives the government um, additional powers, or certain emergency powers, to deal with a, uh, with a, uh, a disaster uh, of, some ma- of, of, of uh, great magnitude. And uh, this is the first time, this is the second time the um, second or third time that, that this act has been um, has been used since, since it was uh, promulgated a few years ago. Um, the first time was during the COVID-19 crisis uh, with the, with the uh, pandemic. The second time was a uh, regional crisis in, uh, in the province of KwaZulu-Natal where there was flooding. And this is now the third time um, that this has been used. Um, and essentially, it's the crisis of of ESCOM. It's a huge uh, power utility. Um, it pr- provides ninety five percent of the electricity supply to South, not only South Africa, but to uh, all Southern African countries as a well. whole. And this this uh, company has been um, in crisis for the last fifteen years. It, it cannot generate the enough electricity. To provide for the for the country and also for for the for the neighboring countries, and so uh, isn't, this is a, a direct result of the um, the mismanagement, the corruption, um, and the policy changes that is, that has been implemented by the INC government um, for the last uh, two decades. 
um and and the result is that um it escom can only provide about half of its installed uh, electricity supply at any given time so that means it has to do what it calls load shedding or these rolling blackouts um and this has been going on uh, for the last 15 years but it's been intensifying since september last year and so the 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 magnitude is really uh, um has been uh, increased enormously since the the end of last year and uh, and this has caused a lot of anger a lot of frustration um across the whole country um and and this is deepened the crisis of the government and of the and it's deepened the the levels of anger and frustrations um in the working class and also in the broader uh, south african society and we should be clear when we talk about rolling blackouts it's not just that people are sitting in dark homes it's not just that people can't run fans and air conditioning although of course those things are also a problem but food has been rotting it's causing all sorts of problems with industry this is a devastating situation which i'm sure is having a big impact on the consciousness of the working class and poor in particular i understand that the economic freedom fighters which is a left-wing party in south africa launched a day of action recently which has gained some traction and visibility particularly on social media internationally was this day of action connected to these blackouts yeah absolutely right the um the economic freedom fighters uh, announced that they would hold a national day of action in the beginning of year of the year and then they um held this day on the 20th of march now just to uh, just to give some context um the opportunity for a, for 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 the the broader working class organizations the unions and the trade unions and so on to take this initiative was re- already there at the end of uh december when this uh, when this uh, blackouts uh, really intensified and at that time um if uh, the trade union federations the big trade union federations wasatu and saftu and all of these organizations if they had taken the lead um at that stage then we could have had a, an even bigger response uh because we would have involved the, the core of the working class uh going into struggle uh unfortunately these organizations uh, the leadership um did not uh, come to the party i did not uh, call for any meaningful action and then the initiative moved over to the economic freedom fighters um they did hold a national day of action on the 20th of march but we must add that this this is a, a crisis of um huge magnitude and a one day of one day of action uh is not going to solve the problem uh it's not going to it's not yeah, i mean the the ruling class can survive one day of protest and so on um and then move up move uh, ahead without without any clear follow up without any uh, program or uh, to sustain the momentum uh ultimately this all of this will 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 fall apart and this is exactly what has happened there was obviously a lot of support for this uh for this call however um also they we, we must say we must say that um uh the the date the date that they that they chose for this national day of action is very was very peculiar it fall, fell over a long weekend Mm. right so the monday was a public holiday oh sorry the tuesday was a public holiday and then they held it on a monday 
uh, which means that not uh, normal in normal situation um, the, the Monday would be a pretty quiet day anyway. Right. So, for instance, in Cape Town, you know, there was free flowing traffic and so on. People didn't go to work. Um, and instead of uh, organizing it on, on a, a day that can hit the, the, the economy hard, they actually did it on a, on a, on a day with, when it's supposed to be very quiet and so on. So very clearly not a strike as such. It was more like a rally. It's not actually yeah. impacting the economy. Absolutely. It was, um, and also they, they didn't really um, mobilize. They, did, uh, they didn't do any community mobilization. They didn't. Um, they didn't uh, uh, approach the unions or the the, the the trade union federations, and so they they just made a general call um, for this uh, day of action. And they think the only rally that they really had was in the capital, um, Pretoria, where the leader Julius Malema was speaking. So uh, it was just a, a general blanket call for a national day of action. And uh, to be fair, it, it was very difficult to gauge how much uh, of the stay away was due to the call and how much was the, the fact that it fell over a very quiet long weekend. How do we explain these really insufficient tactics from the EFF? Because in the past, I know that Malema has made some very bold, very radical sounding statements, but this sounds like quite a tame action given the intensity of the mood in South African society. It feels like a missed opportunity. Well, um, the party is now uh, 10 years old and it's uh, there's, there's a big difference between uh, the situation now and uh, the first, I would say, three or four years of its existence. Um, in the very first you know, the first first one or two or three years, they were very, they were not afraid to uh, to do mass demonstrations, to organize uh, mass rallies, mass pickets, uh, and all these ro- rolling mass actions um, and join them up with the parliamentary struggle. That, that is actually one of the one of the uh, the, feature, the the defining features of the economic freedom fighters. This this struck a lot of terror into the ruling class itself. Um, but since then, they've, they, as you say, they've become much more tame. Um, they have shifted their focus entirely to the parliamentary, uh, playing the parliamentary field. Um, and they, and they've largely abandoned for, for the most part, the, the, the extra parliamentary, uh, struggle. Um, and where they do, where they did, uh, take on the government through the legal system, through the courts and so on. And through the institutions of bourgeois democracy, and so you can see how the party has, uh, has uh, adapted itself to parliamentarism, to uh, to the institutions of uh, of you know the the, the constitution, the, the the rule of law, and so on. And uh, I, I would say primarily that that is that is the EFF, the EFF is a very contradictory organization. Uh, it, it does have. Um, uh, an element of it that is a socialist element, socialist-leaning uh, members and so on. That is, they're looking towards uh, socialist ideas to uh, to, uh, to to waste the class struggle in, in in the country and so on. But also, there's uh, other elements within a party that that looks to ideas such as pan-Africanism or black consciousness and so on, and do not see. Um, the class struggle is the primary struggle. For them, it's a uh, it's struggle of of, uh, of of 
race of black versus white of uh, and if they do talk about uh, um, rich versus poor it's in a context of of, of nationalism and not of, in in terms of of class struggle and so on and and this uh, this uh, is the dominant group within the within the party um, and also the 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 youth wing of the party um, the uh, students command they are they are very petty bourgeois you know they yeah. they, they look to the ideas of black consciousness the ideas of pan africanism as their primary source of uh, of struggle and then and, and and this is this is this is the dominant um, trend and a dominant faction within the party which is uh, which is and and this largely explains why they have not chosen class class struggle methods to uh, to to wage within this context where obviously the the uh, the situation is very conducive for that and where were the unions uh, i remember it was only 5 years ago that SAFTU launched a huge general strike that brought hundreds of thousands of people out onto the streets, looked extremely powerful. You'd think that the situation now would be even more favourable to the serious mobilisation of the working class. Obviously, South Africa has militant and proud uh, trade union traditions. So why is it that the unions also were failing to capitalise on this mood? Well, we must remember that uh, there was a, a, a huge uptick in the class struggle I would say between uh, 2009 and uh, 2013, um, and this 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 shock this uh, shook the foundations of of the country to its core. Uh, it was at that time when they had the the Marikana massacre and and the rolling strikes that that uh, that was waged uh, up and down the country, especially in the mining the mining communities, and this uh, had a massive impact on all all. all all the classes in in South African society, um, and it re- reached its peak in 2013, uh, 2012. You had the Marikana massacre. 20, 2013, you had the uh, the breakaway of uh, the Metal Workers Union (NUMSA), the most uh, the biggest union in the country. Um, you had the formation of a, a breakaway trade union federation called the uh, called SAFTU. Um, and you had the the fracturing, the splintering of the ANC into uh, into, into uh, as a result of all of this, um, and that's fractured and, and uh, uh, threatened to break up the ANC. The the, the result of all of this class struggle. Uh, now in 2013, um, there was a call for the for the unions, uh, especially coming from the left wing, uh, soft unions. To form a, an alternative political uh, vehicle for the masses, you know, to to challenge the ANC. Mm-hmm. But even then, they were. Uh, they, you could see that. Um, I mean, this this call came from from the ground up, from the from from the shop floor up, from the working class itself. And instead of implementing this uh, decision, what was which was which came in a conference, a special conference of the. Um, of uh, of NUMSA, it, the the decision was taken into the the central committee of the of the union, and it was not implemented for uh, four or five years. It was just uh, they just postponed and dragged the feet for the last for about five years, and then they uh, in a very uh, top down manner they announced basically the formation of a party. 
was this the Socialist Revolutionary Workers Party? That's right, the Socialist Revolutionary Workers Party. They just announced it without any uh, groundwork um, coming from from the shop floor, without any real proper input from from the the working from the workers itself who who, who launched this initiative. Yeah, I remember it launched in 2019 and it ended up running at the national elections and getting 0.14% of the vote. Exactly. It's because um, they didn't follow up on the 2013 mandate when, when, the, when the situation was, was ripe and they in, implemented this resolution of the Congress in a very bureaucratic way, um, top-down manner and so on. And, and I would say the reason for this is that... Um, is you know, uh, the leadership is a very, um, they have a fixed schema of how the class struggle should be waged. When the initiative come from below, from the masses and so on, and it does not fit the schema of the leadership, then they, they tend to drag their feet and so on and, 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 uh, um, do not allow for the, for the, the independent movement from, from the ground floor upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they because they they clearly do not see the situation clearly as as ripe enough for the overthrow of capitalism. You know what's really interesting to me is there were certain people on the left and even the so-called Marxist left who were drawing the comparison between the EFF Day of Action and the big struggle that's currently underway in France. And they were saying, "Oh, why is it that in the West people are only ever talking about France when you've got this big day of action and." Africa. It's just that you've got these Eurocentric commentators on the on the so-called left. And what's really interesting to me is that the exact same problems that plague the movement in France, the conservatism of the leaders of the left, the unwillingness of the trade union leaders to be steered from the grassroots from below, the inability to tap into the radicalism of the masses, and the unwillingness to abandon ineffective days of action and launch proper, renewable, serious political strikes, the exact same problems that are holding back the movement in France apply in South Africa as well. It goes to show that the class struggle internationally is beset by the same problems of leadership. Yeah, absolutely right. And we must also remember that uh, just like in France um, and also a few years ago in Greece, when they call these uh, uh, 24 hour strikes, uh, every time the the uh, the situation uh, threatened to boil over. Um, they would call a twenty four hour general strike, and then uh, um, and what the, what this what this does is it is like a, a pressure valve that just let off steam. You know, yes. people to 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 blow off steam, um, to protest and so on, and the next day go back to work until uh, until the next time. This has been happening in South Africa, um, and and. Actually, the unions, the left wing of the unions, the softer unions, have been guilty of this uh, for the last uh, ever since they were actually formed a couple of years ago. They they have called, periodically called these uh, um, these national days of action, and what this does over time, when the workers see this, that 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 not, nothing that um, that this leads nowhere. There's there's no a follow up plan. There's no there's no program of struggle. Then obviously over time uh, the call for a national day of action loses its its potency and people people do not see the um, to see the uh, the need for to go out again. I mean what what has been achieved the, the previous time and so on. 
And so, yeah, I mean, this um, the leadership has 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 done exactly what the what the what has been done in France in, and in other European countries. They've clearly copied all of these methods um, in South Africa as well. Yeah, it goes to show the one thing that the reformist leaders of the mass organizations fear most of all is a movement from below that's outside of their control that might pose a serious challenge to the interest of capitalism. We could stay on South Africa for many hours, I'm sure, but I'm going to um, speed through the continents to Kenya and Nigeria because these are the other two most politically and economically important countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And they've also both seen elections in Kenya last September and Nigeria this year. So what's the political situation in these two key countries? Well, yeah, absolutely right. Um, Nigeria is uh, Africa's biggest economy. Uh, it's also the most uh, populous country. And um, I mean, a quarter of all Africans are Nigerian. So it's a... Uh, it's a very important country. Kenya, uh, in Kenya, in September last year, William Ruto was uh, elected as Kenya's president, uh, defeating his uh, rival Raila Odinga. Uh, Odinga is a serial contender for the for the presidency, and he um, he keeps losing every time. And to be fair, he he, he gets cheated out of um, out of uh, out of these elections, um, and. But, and the margin was very small this time. I mean, um, Ruto got 50.5% of the vote, and Odinga got 48.8% of the vote. Mm-hmm. And as always uh, the case, uh, the outcome was disputed by the Odinga camp, and they they they, um, they uh, accused the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission of colluding with the with the government to fix the results. And as that as there has been uh, ongoing protests ever since uh, ever since the outcome of this uh, this election, um, this was also disputed in the Kenyan uh, legal system. But this was the, ultimately this was dismissed by the uh, Kenyan Supreme Court. Um, but we must say this this is the um, this is not not a new thing in Kenya. Uh, all. Every election is uh, heavily disputed, uh, and and lead to uh, violence on a vast scale. I mean, the most infamous wa- was in uh, um, two thousand and seven and two thousand eight, the post electoral violence, which brought the country to the brink of civil war. Mm. Um, this was when uh, the president at the time, uh, or the the candidate for the for the for the ruling party. Uh, Mwaika Baki was declared the winner against Odinga, despite uh, trailing in the polls right up until the point when the announcement was made of who, who won the election. And the violence that uh, followed, um, as I said, plunged the country into uh, onto to the point of, of barbarism. And you know, beyond the immediate causes, the main reason for for this constant political violence is the legacy of, of British colonialism. Mm. Uh, as the as the as the uh, the direct uh, control of the of the country was uh, uh, you know the country became independent and so on the British left as a parting gift to the people of Kenya they left behind the country was deeply divided along ethnic lines and they actively um, played along this um, along this uh, these divisions 
to to split the the Kenyan people uh, uh, along the ethnic lines, and since then the British and successive Kenyan administrations have put the majority Kikui ethnic group against the the uh, other ethnic groups in the country, and and as I said, the the, the protests have, have have been um, going on ever since the elections uh, the, at the end of last year, and um, Odinga. Uh, obviously, he's a opposition candidate, but he also plays a very negative role in the in the sense that he he, he leads the masses to the point to a certain point of struggle and then abandons abandons the struggle. And he's he's done it again um, just just yesterday. He, he, he reached a deal with the ruling party um, to release uh, some of his um, some of his parliamentarians that has been charged, and in um, and, and they reached a deal, and when we suspend suspend all of the uh, the protests because, because there's also protests on the rising cost of living uh, uh-huh. crisis, and uh, yes, now now reached a deal with the government to have dialogue and so on. But this has been going on for every every time there's election. This is this is, this is the, the method that Odinga uses to um, to gain relevancy to keep to keep himself relevant within the uh, in the struggle, but he doesn't doesn't wage the struggle all to the end. He keeps himself relevant, but he also serves as a bit of a handle on the wider movement. He it sounds like he's basically leaned on by the ruling class to calm everybody down. Yeah, very much so. He's a he's a people's loyal opposition, um, and he can be counted. Uh, he can be counted upon to um, to wage the struggle up up until a certain point. Um, because obviously there's a lot of frustration and anger and so on. People need to protest, and he provides this vehicle for them to to do so. But then um, at the end of the day, he only waits to struggle up to a certain point and then abandons it. And it has been his playbook for for ever since he's, he's uh, entered the political arena. Let's shoot back over to Nigeria. So as we continue this discussion, we'll touch more and more, I'm sure, on how the wounds left behind by colonialism and the new pressure of the rising cost of living is um, bearing down on the class struggle across Africa. But Nigeria, as you point out, is a very important country, huge economy, um, very populous. And there's also been something of a political earthquake in Nigeria in the last few weeks. So there were elections where um, the ruling party, the APC, one uh, nominally uh, again a guy who's been around for absolutely ages um, bola tanubu who i think his slogan was initially it's my turn uh, which is inspiring but more interesting um is the result for the labor party and its candidate peter obi because they i think for the first time in the history of nigerian democracy actually posed a credible electoral threat to the two main parties, the APC and the PDP. So can you talk a bit about what's going on in Nigeria and what's this result for the Labour Party, who got 25% as opposed to the winning parties, 30%, um, what this represents? Yeah, absolutely. The the elections was, uh, the result was uh, significant. Um, that, as you say, the APC's uh, candidate, uh, Bola Tanubu defeated the, the PDP candidate, Atuku Abubakar. Um, 
but what was really significant was the performance of uh, of Peter Obi uh, or the or the Labour Party in general, um, who received uh, you know slightly slightly more than twenty five percent. Now, Peter Obi himself is not a uh, very uh, uh, progressive or left wing candidate. He's he's a he's a he's a guy of the establishment. He, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, have any illusions in in him himself. Yeah, he's the governor of Anambra State. Um, he, ca- he carried out the interest of capitalism in local government. Yeah, absolutely. But with the, the most significant uh, uh, development is that um, the Labour Party actually uh, became, became the, uh, did very well in Lagos State, which is the most popular state in, um, in Nigeria. And um, and actually defeated the the APC uh, in their home in uh, defeated Bola Tinubu in his home state, uh, and also Nigeria's most important state, and um, and the and they did very well in this uh, with where the working class is is, is concentrated. Um, so that's that that is a of huge significance. Um, and the, I would say the main reason for this is that. Large sections of Nigerian society. And also remember, Nigeria is a very um, like most sub-Saharan African countries. It's a very youthful population, and um, large sections of the youth, especially, are sick and tired of these uh, of the APC and the PDP, and they're looking for for an alternative. Um, you know, a, a third party as an alternative, and uh, and uh, and. The Labour Party, despite all, you know, despite not really waging a, uh, a genuine alternative to the to the two main parties, uh, a section of the youth, uh, and especially, uh, saw that as as an alternative avenue. Now we must remember that just uh, not so long ago, um, twenty twenty, there was a huge uh, uh, protest of. Mainly led by uh, youth groups in the Ansars protest, which mm-hmm. was uh, a protest which started against a, a special police unit, uh, the anti anti robbery uh, union unit within the Nigerian armed forces, and this uh, spread throughout the whole country, spread like wildfire throughout the whole country, and became a real challenge to the Nigerian uh, ruling class as a whole. Um, ultimately, this this movement. Um, didn't you know it? It it died down, but it wasn't crushed. Um, it's it, all of the Nigerian youth um, waged a, a courageous struggle and and uh, opposed all of the the main fa- factions of, of Nigerian uh, capitalism. Mm. And and it is and it is it, even even then we could see that these people are absolutely um, uh, do not represent. The, the Nigerian youth and do not represent the Nigerian working class and the and the, the masses as a whole and the wicked and that that's that the the uh, the result has been this uh, this uh, mass participation of the youth within the political arena um, to try and to try and change their situation. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the main lesson here, isn't it? That there's clearly a hunger for an alternative, and for now, a big section are of, of the working class and the youth are 
expressing themselves politically through the Labour Party, which was set up by the trade unions. And I believe the leading trade unions made an announcement that they were going to take over or reclaim ownership over the Labour Party, which in the last few decades has just been turned into an absolute thieves' den of pro-capitalist elements, of corrupt elements. It's been completely rotted out in the last few years. However, obviously, with these developments and the pressure from the rising, um, radicalized young layers of Nigerian society, who used to say. Um, So just moving elsewhere in the east to the Horn of Africa, this is a region that's experienced horrendous droughts and violence in the last period. How have these catastrophes come about and what are the main countries affected? Yeah, when we uh, talk about the Horn of Africa, we talk about uh, Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia, uh, Kenya, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, and Uganda. And, um, and this, this uh, drought has uh, affected about uh, 36 million people in this region. Uh, Two million people are directly displaced uh, by the drought. And about 22 million people are in uh, desperate need of food, of uh, emergency uh, food aid and so on. Climate change largely to blame? Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, Climate change, obviously, there, there is uh, the, the phenomenon, the El Nino phenomenon, which is uh, which also uh, um, affected this 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 region. But El, that that is a normal. Uh, it's not that's a normal uh, climate phenomenon. But it, and, and only lasts about for about uh, twelve to eighteen months when it when it usually arrives. But the in in parts of Somalia, there's been a drought going on and off for about more than a decade now, um, and uh, and obviously the majority of uh, of the people that are displaced are the most vulnerable people, uh, women and children and so on. Um, and this is this the sixth the sixth year in the whole of all of Africa. This is now the sixth consecutive year of failed ra- uh, rainy season, especially in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. Um, and obviously, we can, we can see the, the, the direct impact of climate change. And just to be, to be um, just to give an interesting figure, I mean, the whole of the, whole of the African continent, uh, uh, if you look at the emissions of greenhouse gases, that was the only, uh, they only contribute to about 3.8 percent of global emissions, mm. but but the impact of climate change is affect, uh, you know affected disproportionately the the poorer sections of the world, especially uh, um, the countries that is that is heavily heavily reliant on agriculture and so on, like this the, all of these countries are. Um, for example, 80 percent of Kenya is arid or semi-arid land. Leaving most of his people rely, relying on past, pastoralism and uh, uh, for their livelihoods, and currently about 4.5 million Kenyans across 23 of these uh, of this arid land require humanitarian assistance. In Somalia, 75% live in rural areas, with 60 60% relying on herding and 15, 15% relying on crops. So you can see um, any drought or any uh, uh, weather phenomenon that that is um, can have uh, you know uh, can have a devastating impact um, on 
on on these countries as well. We're going to talk about Sudan a bit more next week, I think, but there's been a vicious conflict in Ethiopia. Officially, hostilities paused in November last year. Could you give listeners a sense of how this um, conflict came about? Because I think that its scale is often... Um, overlooked particularly by international observers i mean people talk about the ukraine war but by some estimates 500 600,000 people might have died in the tigray conflict let alone the millions of people who were internally displaced so what was the situation in ethiopia that led to all this bloodshed yeah absolutely i mean this is on we've just uh, talked about the the impact of climate change and to compound the misery of uh, this uh, this country uh, you, you've now had a civil war uh, which as you said is the, the, they reached a formal uh, ceasefire uh, a few months ago um, but this is obviously the uh, as a result of of this conflict this conflict you know in Somalia uh, there's also been a, a civil war and so on. There's also been a conflict between Somalia and uh, a Somaliland, which is a, a, a wannabe breakaway country. And all of this, um, the situation is, is caused by border disputes uh, over land and resources and so on. Now, in, in Ethiopia itself, you have the civil war between the uh, federal government and the rebellious Tigray province. Uh, Tigray make make up about six uh, percent of the population of uh, of uh, of the country, and the Tigray People's Liberation Front um, have been um, the leaders of of this uh, party has been actually the ruling elite of all of Ethiopia since the early nineteen nineties when they overthrew the military junta, and uh, ruled until twenty twenty eighteen when they were, were when they were pushed out. Uh, after mass protests and so on. And, and with the weakening of the, the TPLF, uh, the new Prime Minister, Abe Ahmed, um, we, we just won the Nobel Prize for peace. Um, he, so he wanted to consolidate his, his hold on power. But they, he had a problem. The, the TPLF uh, still had, an, uh, had its armed force intact. It has uh, experienced officers. And fighters um, and all of the uh, all of its organizations are still intact. And so uh, Abiy Ahmed clearly saw this as a threat. And he, he, he couldn't um, couldn't consolidate power with an existing or threat in the in the Tigray province. And you know the, the immediate pretext for a war was, of course, the, the COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, elections were supposed to be held on a federal level, and then Abiy Ahmed, uh, when the uh, pandemic broke. Uh, broke out. He extended his uh, stay in office through the upper house of parliament, um, uh, and then the Tigrayans accused him of uh, an unlawful power grab, and they went ahead with elections in the Tigray province itself, which uh, brought them in conflict with the with the federal government. And now, and then each party uh, uh, failed to recognize the legitimacy of the other party. And from that point onwards, uh, the uh, war was inevitable. But that, that was just the pretext of the, of the whole situation. Um, as you said, the, the war has destabilized the whole region, the entire Horn of Africa. 
Um, there's been over 380,000 people have died. Um, more than 600,000 displaced. It was characterized by, like all civil wars, they're characterized by mass atrocities uh, on all sides. Um, and as, as, if, as a matter of fact, the federal government stared defeat in, the, in, in its face. Um, when the TPLF turned the tables uh, at some stage in a war and even marched on uh, Addis Ababa. At some stage, they were only like a few hundred kilometers away from, from the capital, Addis Ababa. Until uh, countries like uh, Turkey and the United Arab Emirates got involved, armed the, the federal government with uh, advanced weaponry and drones and all of these things. And, and that's the turned the war into a stalemate. And, and it's only it's it's then that they uh, they signed this uh, peace accord on the second November uh, with the TPLF, and neither side was able to secure a an outright victory as we as, uh, as uh, at the end of the war. So we have no reason to suspect that the um, conflict has been resolved. I'm sure that tragically, until there's the socialist liberation of the whole African continent, then this conflict and conflicts like this one are going to probably become more commonplace and even more intense and brutal. So moving from the east to central Africa, um, you've already mentioned Rwanda, uh, also Uganda. These are countries that play an important role in the African political scene. What role do they play? Yeah, absolutely right. The... Um... Uganda uh, President Yoweri Museveni, um, he famously came to power in the mid-1980s, um, promising to do away with uh, with people staying in office for decades and so on. Um, well, he's now been in office <laughs> ever since, and he hasn't, uh, he's no, he's no uh, plan of going anywhere. Uh, he is, of course, uh, very close to the West, uh, especially the United States. Um, very close ties to the to, to the U.S. and, and, and especially, um, but he plays a, a lesser role in in, uh, in in Central Africa. the The main um, the main player is uh, a very small country called uh, Rwanda, and his president uh, Paul Kagame. And 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 Paul Paul Kagame is the quintessential puppet of the West. I mean, the latest example is the scheme that he struck with the with the with, with the British government to uh, to house asylum seekers in uh, in in that country. Another example is um, when he sent troops to Mozambique after an insurgency broke out against uh, the French energy giant Toto, mm. um, which uh, uh, there was insurgency in in uh, in northern Mozambique because. The local population were excluded from uh, from this uh, from this national gas project, and um, and locals took up arms against uh, against the government and also against this multinational corporation. And then, uh, uh, well, uh, Kagame sent troops together with other other countries uh, in in defense of uh, this French uh, giant or oil giant Total. Also, um, I mean, they then they they dubbed the whole thing as an Islamic insurgency, sent troops and to fight uh, allegedly to fight jihadists and so on. Um, and you know, this is this is a man. Uh, Bill Clinton famously called him 
one of the greatest leaders of our time. And Tony Blair called him a visionary leader. But those are two damning endorsements, if ever there were. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, and this is, I mean, this is, this is, but this is a man who has no time for opposition in in uh, in Rwanda. In 2017, uh, he was famously re-elected with. Uh, uh, 99% of the vote, and, and in Africa, there's a joke. Isn't it? You know, the, the first sign of of a dictatorship is when when you win 99% of the vote. Mm. Um, and he is, he is, um, I mean, he's, he's imprisoned uh, his uh, his rivals in in um, in, and also he's assassinated his his rivals. Famously, uh, a few years ago, he assassinated a a general in the in the um, an intelligence community, which was in in South Africa at the time in Johannesburg, and this caused a, a diplomatic and uh, uh, fallout with with South Africa. Also, he imprisoned everybody that 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 uh, criticized him or, or stand up against him. Um, is uh, is open to to persecution. Also, he um, uh, an incredible, obviously inflated opinion of himself. I mean. If, Famously, he said that uh, the problem he faces uh, when picking a, a successor is is uh, someone to carry on with the with the is to pick someone to duplicate his role, but also to prevent that 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 person from uh, bringing all his his good work down. Um, so basically, he's not going anywhere until he <laughs> until he finds uh, a, a suitable replacement. Um, and that's why he changed the constitution to uh, to allow him to 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 bring to power. I mean, the man is a, megalom a megalomaniac, and, and and I mean, there's no there's no other word for it. But his most famous role is, of course, his uh, involvement um, in a Democratic Republic of Congo, which I uh, I'm sure we we can talk about this uh, in more more depth. Yes, and I think we should do that immediately because the Great Lakes region are little discussed in the West, but the situation in Eastern Congo, I discovered when we were having a chat before recording this episode, is apparently regarded as the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world after Yemen. So... Can you explain uh, what's going on? And you can talk, perhaps, develop this point about the involvement of Rwanda. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the probably most tragic examples of a country that has been absolutely ravaged by wars, atrocities on a mass scale um, for a very, very long time. I mean, for instance, um, in its in the past, uh, in World War Two, um, obviously when we talk about the World War Two, we talk about the the Holocaust, in which uh, six million Jews were were slaughtered, and everybody rightly condemns that as a as a an atrocity of unimaginable scale, and uh, should never 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 be repeated, and so on. Everybody should fight against those kind of atrocities. But um, but it's very um, not very well known, especially in the West. Is in in the Congo itself during the colonial period, um, more than ten million people was were killed by the, the Belgian colonialists of uh, Leopold, um, and as much as eighty percent of the population suffered uh, physical uh, physical violence 
uh, uh, by the regime, either through killings, massacres, mutilations on a grand scale. And um, and that's I mean it didn't end there. Uh, the 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 wars in the 1990s were some of the biggest. Uh, mass atrocities since the world since the uh, the Second World War, and uh, as as I said, as we said, Kagame is a darling of the West, but he has in recent times actually he has fallen out with the especially with uh, with Washington, particularly over his involvement in uh, Eastern Congo, in the Eastern uh, DRC. Now, of course, Western imperialism, United States, they don't care. They couldn't care less about the Congolese people. But the problem is that Kagame is um, providing military assistance to uh, a rebel group called the M23, M23 rebels or the March 23 rebels at a time when the imperialism wants uh, normal business to resume. Yeah, they, they now have a, uh, um, in, in the capital Kinshasa, they have someone that they can work with. Uh, Felix Felix Chisekeri, and so they they just they just want uh, normal business to con to resume because Congo is a, a one of the world's biggest oil uh, mineral rich countries, and uh, they just want these multi multinational corporations to to go on with the with normal business. Um, now, and uh, obviously Kagame is the through his funding of the M23 rebels and his involvement in the Congolese uh, Eastern Congolese. Conflict is uh, destabilizing the whole situation, um, and and the truth is, Kagame has his own agenda in Congo. Um, hence the fallout with Washington, and this has become you know a serious, um, so serious that, for instance, the the um, the U.S. Congress has now uh, withheld. I think something like nearly 150 million dollars of assistance, assistance package to uh, to Kong, to to Rwanda, and 20 percent of Rwanda's budget still comes from foreign aid. So this is this is a uh, the, the this is actually uh, Washington's uh, Washington's way of of uh, trying to pull uh, Kagame back in line. Now, just just to talk about the M23 rebels, these are. They have the origins in the rebellious offices of the March 23 movement of April 20, 2012. So this is basically a, a movement that was started by officers that um, that uh, of, uh, rebellious officers, and this is an offshoot of the, the second Congolese War, which uh, formally ended in 2003. But this conflict, as uh, in effect, is still continuing in the eastern part of the country. And you know, we talk about the uh, the brutal legacy of the of of the Congo in the Second Congolese War, August uh, nineteen ninety eight to July two thousand and three. This was the deadliest military conflict anywhere in the world since uh, World War Two, in which more than five point four million people were were killed in this in this conflict. Um, and the eastern, uh, the conflict currently in the eastern part of the, of, the, of the country is still an ongoing or an offshoot of that that conflict that, that was uh, that was uh, that happening at that time. And and this um, armed group, the M23 rebels, and also other uh, groups like Uganda's uh, Lords of Resistance Army, um, 
has also been uh, involved. And obviously, there's the imperialist interest, which uh, because of the, in, the involvement of huge multinational corporations, the imperialists are also involved in this, in funding this conflict and so on. And the, these Congolese wars have been, um, uh, the origins actually was in Rwanda, the genocide of 1994, mm. in which the Rwandan armed forces followed these uh, Hutu rebels which committed the atrocities. They followed them across the, the river into, into Congo. Um, and they have, and they have, uh, and, and, and so, and so the, um, Congolese forces or the Rwandan forces have never left actually the, that part of, of, uh, of the Congo. Um, and there's been, there's been an armed presence and, uh, future military assistance to the M23 rebels ever for the last, uh, three decades, uh, funded by Paul Kagame. I mean, it's a very dark picture that you paint and, I'd love to end on a more positive note because there's so much I'd like to talk about. We've barely scratched the surface. Obviously, Africa is an enormous continent with a very complex series of important class struggles. We haven't even talked about Somalia in much depth, the French imperialist retreat from Mali, the struggle against the king in Eswatini. There are so many things we could discuss. But just to bring this part of the discussion to an end, would you say that Africa is approaching a turning point because it feels like in a number of countries there's a new layer of young people young workers in particular who are recovering from some of the traumas of the past decades and are starting to move into the arena of class struggle yeah very much so as as we said earlier in this uh, podcast africa is a very youthful population for instance um the population of the Gulf, Gulf continent is expected to double to 2.4 billion people by 2050. Uh, and be- between now and 2040, every second person born in the world will be African. And uh, 60% of the world's working age population will be African. So um, it has uh, enormous implications for, um, for the class struggle on a global scale. And we have seen this in, in numerous African countries, right from the north of the continent, from uh, Tunisia, starting in Tunisia in late 2010, we've seen the, the spark of the Arab revolutions. We've seen in West Africa the um, mass uh, revolutionary movements in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Senegal, Togo, Gabon. We've seen um, uh, mass demonstrations, mass protests of the youth. Uh, currently in Kenya, although the, the leadership uh, plays a, a very negative role. And in South Africa, right to, to the southern part of the continent, we've seen a huge uh, uptick in the class struggle. And the, uh, very much so, the, the, the youth, the working class, the peasants, the oppressed layers of the, of the African people are looking for a revolutionary alternative uh, out, of the, out of the crisis that affects them. And, um, and, and, and they are willing to struggle to to attain the the, the liberation from from the capitalist system. Fantastic, thank you, Ben. Now I'm not going to say goodbye because we are going to continue this discussion because we're going to move straight on to 
the broader view of the historical context that's led to the current intensification of the class struggle in Africa. And we're going to try and draw out some of the main geopolitical tendencies as well. But for the sake of our listeners, I'll say goodbye because you'll have to listen to this second part of our discussion next week. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.